Well, if you haven't already, turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. We're not going to tackle a significantly long section here tonight. We're going to tackle, hopefully, a bite-sized section here so that we could have plenty of time for eating and fellowshipping with each other. Acts chapter 26. I'll give you a minute. I hear some pages turning still. All right, well, the title of tonight's devotion is going to be For This Hope's Sake. For This Hope's Sake. And it's an interesting title, but you're going to see it's going to come from our text here in these first eight verses of Acts. When you think about the word hope, as it's used in the Bible, it always refers to a confident expectation. A confident expectation. Now, in our language and in our day, the word has taken on more of a sense of I am optimistic. I have an optimistic feeling that perhaps maybe this would happen, though I know there's a good chance it may or may not happen. But I I still wish for that to be the outcome. But the Bible doesn't use the word hope in that way. We've talked about this before, but when the Bible uses the word hope, it is in the sense of having a confident expectation, that expectation built on the object of the confidence. And in the case of the Christian, the object of the confidence always comes back to God himself, or to God's past promises. And so if the source of the confidence is ultimately found in God and God is completely reliable and never fails, then when we say, I have this hope that's based in Christ or based in God's provision for my life, we could say that in a way where we would have this confident looking forward to something that's yet to happen. Yet to happen. So hence, our definition of hope biblically being a confident expectation. Most specifically, hope as used in the Bible refers to a confident expectation about God's future fulfillment of a promise that he made of some kind. So it's a confident expectation about God's future fulfillment of some promise that he's made to us. And so when we have this biblical hope, that hope is always looking towards God's fulfillment of something that he's promised to do in our lives. So there's really, when you're thinking about biblical hope, you're seeing two components to it. One of waiting for something yet to occur. So there's a sense of waiting it hasn't happened yet. But the other of this positive expectancy that suggests this trust and confidence that we have from the underlying source of that hope, which is God himself. So there is a waiting aspect to it. A hope that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the reliability or faithfulness of God himself about something that he's promised to take place in the future, the culmination of whatever it is that we're looking forward to. And for the Christian, that's to one day be with him, to one day experience all of eternity with him, to, for the rest of this life, have his provision in our lives, have his direction in our lives, have his indwelling in our lives in the sense of the Spirit of God living and directing and enabling and empowering this life that's yet to live, be lived here. So in a sense, that's a future hope that God will provide for what's left of this life and also this hope that In the future for all of eternity, God will have provided an opportunity for us to experience life in a perfect way, free from the very presence of sin, free from any sickness, sadness, or death, in his very presence in a place that the Bible refers to as heaven. So in your presence then, 
we will get to experience that true fullness of joy that we only experience temporarily when we're walking in union or fellowship with him in this life, when we're walking with our focus and occupation on him, when we're walking by means of or the direction of the Spirit of God, we're experiencing a measure of or a glimpse of that fullness of joy that is one day going to be experienced in a permanent, complete way when we're with him in glory. So the man of faith ultimately has hope that is based on or based in the faithfulness of his God. So when you're thinking about biblical hope, it's this hope that's based in an object and that object is God and the basis of that hope is the past faithfulness and expected future faithfulness of a God who is always faithful. So the ultimate validation of the reasonableness of that future expectation, it's found in Christ. So when you think about what is the biblical evidence that is in front of us for this expectation that God will be faithful, well, it's littered. It's found throughout the Bible. You could look at examples of it, but there's no greater example you could point to of God's faithfulness than the culmination of so many promises that God foreshadowed and pointed to and showed us glimpses of in the Old Testament that were fulfilled with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when you're thinking about the greatest thing you could point to as evidence of the reasonableness of having your hope in God's faithfulness, it would be found in Christ. Now what aspects of that? Well, Christ's coming, so much of that had been prophesied and foretold in the Old Testament. His earthly ministry, so many of the things that are recorded that Jesus did to demonstrate that he was God himself, the unique God-man who had come to be the unique Lamb of God who would be the permanent and final sacrifice for man's sin. How about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? The death of Christ was foretold. It is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ as he died in the place of the guilty. The innocent lamb had his blood shed in place of the guilty who should have had to pay that debt that was owed. But instead of having to pay that debt that was owed by each individual man, woman, and child on the basis of their individual guiltiness before God on the basis of their sinfulness, God in his love, he said, I don't want that debt to fall on those that I love so much. Based in my love for them, I'm going to provide a way for that debt to be paid by the substitute work or sacrifice of another. And that is the message of Christianity, that Christ died on behalf of or in the place of the guilty. So that if man would put his confidence in Christ's sacrifice, for having met his sin debt that was owed, his sacrifice in behalf of or on behalf of him, the one who was guilty, and the substitution of God's righteousness or Christ's righteousness onto his account as a byproduct of his faith in Christ's finished work for him, that person could be declared to be justified or be in a right standing with a holy God based on the person and work of Jesus Christ or the substitution of Christ in his place. So what better validation is there of the reasonableness of having your hope in God when you see that God has provided and was faithful to provide for the very most critical thing that all men were in need of, which was a substitute to deal with their sinfulness? And then we look at the resurrection. We celebrated Easter Sunday not long ago. But what better evidence was there of the reliability of Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of God than to see that God looked at the sacrifice of his son and he showed his acceptance 
of the sacrifice as being fully satisfying of all the debt that was owed by all men for all time by raising Jesus from the dead to show that, in fact, he was exactly who he claimed to be and his work was completely satisfactory to accomplish the payment that was owed for all man's sin that man themselves could never have satisfied or never have paid for. So the Christian's adversaries, if that's the greatest evidence of a basis or a foundation on which to place your hope, your confident expectation that God will be faithful to keep all of his promises based on his faithfulness that was demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it stands to reason or it's natural that the Christian's adversaries would ultimately attack that message, that they would object to that message about the person and work of Jesus Christ, that they would ultimately reject that message and in rejecting that message, they would reject any messenger who would dare to proclaim the sufficiency of Christ's finished work on man's behalf. You see that natural flow of logic there? That if this is the most foundational basis for your faith, your acceptance, or your confidence in God's faithfulness, and if this is the thing, the thing that is the only possible way for sinful man to be brought into a right relationship with God through faith alone, in the grace of God that was demonstrated by the sacrifice of Christ, then it stands to reason that Satan or the adversary would be interested in undermining that message if, and undermining anyone who would declare that message. And so that's what Paul's going to get at. He's going to say, this attack that I'm facing personally as a messenger of God's message of hope, God's message of good news, this attack that I'm facing, this resistance that I'm facing to, to this message that I'm proclaiming, it's not about me. It's about them rejecting the ultimate message that I'm proclaiming about God and his provision, God and his goodness, God and his love, God and his, the way that he made possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what they're really attacking is the hope that I have in the object behind that hope, which is the faithfulness of God, but what they're really going after is my message that I'm proclaiming, not my message, but the message God entrusted to me of the person and work of his son and, this, and how that is the only solution to man's sinfulness. So that's a little bit of a long-winded introduction. I'm sorry for that. But the death and resurrection of Christ is foundational to the message of the Christian. So as Paul preached that message, he said, this is the reason I have hope. And when they attacked his message of hope, they weren't really attacking him. They were attacking that message, and that's what we talked about in chapter 25 the last time we met for one of these devotionals for these church fellowship nights. Now, in these first eight verses, this isn't going to take us too long. Paul's going to communicate that it's really the underlying hope of the Christian that they're denying and they're objecting to and they're rejecting. So when we think about the background for how did we get to chapter 26 here, I'm going to go very quickly here, but Paul, in our following of his mission journey, he ended up going to Jerusalem, and he went there knowing the danger that he faced. Now, since that time that he came to Jerusalem, in a short period of time, there was two times that the Jews tried to plot to kill him, to take his life, and there was two different times that the Roman government was used by God to intervene and protect the apostle Paul. The second time they tried to kill him, the Romans took Paul to a place called Caesarea, a distance away from Jerusalem, but not that far. And they took him to 
be protected there, but also to be examined by the governor of the whole region, the Roman governor named Felix. Felix then had an opportunity to hear Paul's testimony several times, and he knew that Paul was innocent, but he didn't free him. Then this other governor takes over named Festus, and when the new governor takes over, the Jews kind of, they re, they're reinvigorated in their attack of Paul, and so they try to get this new guy to accept their position that Paul should be put to death. Now that governor doesn't go for it because Paul himself invokes his right to have a trial in front of Caesar himself. And so Paul says, I'm not going to stand, uh, I'm not going to allow for you to be the fact finder here. As a Roman citizen, I appeal to my ultimate rights as a Roman to have my case heard by Caesar himself. So that kind of, I don't know, it, it put handcuffs on this new governor Festus because he said, I might have freed this guy because I actually believe that he's innocent, but since he's asked to go to Caesar, I'm going to send him to Caesar. Well, in the meantime... This King Agrippa, who was this kind of puppet king of the Jews that was, put, was in place under the control of the Roman Empire, he came to town to visit Festus and to check out the area. And when he did that, he, was, he wanted to examine Paul himself, or he was asked to do that by this Festus who knew that he might have more insights into some of the Jewish culture and the Jewish traditions. And so, again, there's the background, a little bit long-winded, but that's where we pick up here when we look at chapter 26, because verses 23 through 27, that kind of sets the stage for our present chapter, verse chapter 25. It tells about how all of that was happening. So now he's actually going to appear in front of King Agrippa and in front of this governor Festus, and that's where we pick up. So let's pick up Paul's speech or defense here as it starts in chapter 26 verse 1. Now when Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself, so Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. Now verse 2, he's going to start his actual speech. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So we have this introduction there in those first three verses of chapter 26 where Agrippa is laid out as this uniquely qualified judge. So King Agrippa is in a unique position to understand the controversy because he's a practicing Jew himself. So he was familiar with Jewish customs and points of dispute. He was also a thoroughly Hellenistic king, meaning that he lived a very, though he was a Jew, he lived a very Roman lifestyle and he, like I said, was a puppet to the Roman government. So he could give an opinion about both the Jewish aspects and the Roman legal aspects of these claims that were being made against Paul and against in, and speak to Paul's situation that he was in. So now Paul's going to keep going with his speech. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. So they knew what Paul was all about. Verse 5, they knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify, you can insert there honestly, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. 
Now, so verses 4 and 5 there, we see that Paul is noting the irony of being accused by religious Jews when his whole background was to be a religious Jew. Paul was one of them. He had the same background as them. He will say in other writings of his that my pedigree is much greater than any of theirs. It's much greater than anyone, really, as I hold my religious pedigree. If you could be saved by religious pedigree, I would be the first one in line because I was the most devout in every facet of the Jewish religion. And so he's just noting that they're accusing me of being a devout or overly devout in my faith just because they disagree with me. But in fact, I come from the same background that they come from. I'm no stranger to them. So now we're going to have Paul identify the real disagreement in verses 6 through 8 here. This is the crux of our lesson. And now I stand and am judged. Now what does he say he's judged for? For the hope of the promises made by God to our fathers. To this promise our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? So there we have our title. For hope's sake, in verse 7, I am accused. For hope's sake, I am accused. Now what does he mean by this? Well, faithful Jews, he's saying in verses 6 and 7, they eagerly anticipated the fulfillment of God's promises to national Israel. They anticipated the fulfillment of God's promises that were a part of their culture, were a part part of the Old Testament, were a part of God's written revelation to them that they had been living under and living with. They saw that the man of faith was anticipating God's future fulfillment of promises that had yet to be fulfilled. That the man of faith was taking God at his word and trusting God to be faithful to keep all the promises that he had made to them, one of which was that there would be a redeemer. And I would say especially the promises related to the redeemer or the Messiah and even their own resurrection as it related to if if they had placed their faith in the coming Redeemer or the coming Messiah, or if God was going to keep his promises to all faithful Jews that they would be a part of, the, even the millennial kingdom, the reality is there would have to be a resurrection for that to occur. And so, but especially the promises that related to the Redeemer or Messiah, that's what's in view here. And so Paul is saying the irony of this disagreement is that just like I, they were eagerly looking forward to the coming of the Redeemer and God's fulfillment of his promises. The difference is that the Redeemer has come and his name was Jesus Christ and I have accepted that, but they don't accept that. They've rejected that. That's the ultimate issue. See, Paul's belief that Jesus was the fulfillment of these promises, that was the real issue. The culmination of Christ's saving work was his resurrection. And so as Paul talks about the issue or one of the, the culmination of this or the, a key criteria in all of this is that Christ himself was resurrected. He was resurrected as the first fruits or the evidence of our future resurrection. The reason that I can have this hope is because Christ himself died in our place. Christ was the fulfillment of the messianic promises of a redeemer 
Christ, as he fulfilled those promises, he died in our place. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, speaking to the eternal life that God alone can offer through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what these that are accusing me, that's what they don't agree with. You see, the hope that was the Jewish people in the Old Testament were looking forward to, that the apostle that the Apostle Paul had been looking forward to but didn't understand had already come. The, the hope that these Jewish leaders had been looking forward to but had missed out on. That hope had already been realized through the person and work of Jesus Christ as he had already been resurrected from the dead to establish that there had been victory over hell, death, and the grave on a final basis. So what they were really objecting to was that the resurrection of Christ and the work of Christ, that was the culmination of all of this. That the resurrection authenticated the person and work of Jesus. And see, the, the believer would had no issue with that. The one who trusted in God's ability to do anything, the power of God, the provision of God, trusted that Jesus was the fulfillment of those promises, that person didn't have any difficulty in accepting the resurrection. Because why couldn't? Why wouldn't God be able to resurrect Jesus from the dead if in fact he had already promised a future bodily resurrection in the Old Testament? Why couldn't he do that? Why wouldn't he have been able to do that? And so that's what you see there, this tongue-in-cheek. Verse 8, the statement in in verse 8, he's saying, why should that be thought incredible? And she, Paul is just, again, he's being a little bit sarcastic there. He's summarizing the Jewish objection to Christianity. The objection to Christianity, it wasn't the resurrection at all. Because with the exception of the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in a future bodily resurrection. It's for this hope's sake I am accused by the Jews. It's because I've placed my hope and my hope is found in the person and work of Jesus. What he's really saying is because my hope has been realized, that's what they really have an objection to. The realization of the hope that Jewish people had that was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the real problem, again, it wasn't the resurrection. That's why he's ending that section by saying, Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? The Pharisee, the sect of the Pharisees that Paul was a part of and that was condemning him and accusing him, they believed in the very same thing. So the real point at issue is the resurrection of Jesus, but more importantly, it was the fact that it proved or it attested to or it validated the claim that he had made consistently, which is that he was the Messiah. Jesus had very vocally said that those prophecies and the scriptures that you're referring to, those were referring to me. Those were speaking about me. I am the fulfillment of those. I am the Messiah. I am the Redeemer. He very publicly had stated that. The reason that the Jewish people picked up stones to stone him multiple different times and sought to stone anyone who would proclaim the message of Jesus is because they refused to accept Jesus as the culmination of those messianic promises regarding the Redeemer. That's why. That's why they wanted to stone him. And why, why would they not accept Jesus? You kids have any ideas about a couple? There's many reasons, but 
Why, do you have any ideas? Why would they not accept Jesus? You want to take a stab at it, Owen? Some of it was that, that they were misguided. They were led astray by the people they trusted. The religious leaders that they had so much confidence in, a lot of the people, they followed after the Pharisees. But why would the Pharisees not accept Jesus? Calvin? That was part of it. They, if Jesus was the Messiah, then the people would follow after who? Him, right? And not them. I'm going to give you a couple of, any other ideas? Pride, that's a good one. What, is, what does John uh, 3, uh, what is it, 19 say? Men love what? What, Owen? Men love what? They love darkness rather than light because the light exposes their evil deeds. Another reason is because Jesus wasn't what they were expecting. He wasn't what they were hoping for. They were so focused on physical rescue, physical prosperity, that they didn't see the spiritual offer that Jesus was making that I'm here to fix the spiritual problem that you have. Yes, one day, yes, I will also and could also fix the circumstances that you're in and one day he will do that. There will be a literal earthly kingdom. But the reality is that his first thing is you can't relate to me as the king in a physical sense if you can't relate to me as the king in the spiritual sense first. And they didn't want to hear that. They wanted to see the Romans be overthrown. They wanted physical prosperity, financial prosperity. They wanted independence. So that's ultimately why they rejected the Messiah. So for this hope's sake, they are accusing me. You know that when people don't like you, when you spread the gospel, when you tell them the good news about Jesus, we talked about this last time, it's not you it's for your hope's sake that they're accusing you. They're not accusing you because there's anything in particular about you that they hate. They're accusing you for the hope that you have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what they don't want to hear about. And so ultimately, take pride in that, not pride in a negative sense, but be glad that the reason you're having persecution is because you're standing tall for Jesus. When you stand tall for Jesus and speak about Jesus and open your mouth about Jesus and tell about the good news of Jesus and when people accuse you for this hope's sake that you have, be glad. That's a badge of honor to be able to say, I was willing to let the Lord use me to spread the message of his hope to a lost and dying world around me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could get together. Thank you for this opportunity that we had to look in your word. Thank you for all the people that were able to come and be a part of it here tonight. Pray that this message would have been encouraging to them as we just think about the hope that we have in you and that hope has been realized in the sense that you've already won the victory through the sacrifice of your son, through his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. Pray that we could proudly proclaim that good news of who you are and what you've done. Thank you for, again, this food that you've provided. Pray even as we eat here that we'd be thankful for you providing it for us. Thank you for all the hands that prepared it, everyone who worked behind the scenes to get this meal ready. Pray that it would be, it'd be a, an encouraging time of fellowship here and pray that you'd keep everybody safe. In Jesus' name, amen.